what might it mean to live the doxology-driven life? What might it mean to live the doxology-driven life? I'm guessing that most of us can imagine to one degree or another, whatever it looks like in your mind, what it would mean to live the wealth-driven life. <laughs> you could probably get a picture in your head of what that would look like. Or the reputation-driven life. Or the suspicion-driven life. Or the YOLO-driven life. Or the pleasure-driven life. Or the success-driven life. You fill in the blank. You could probably picture those. But what about the doxology-driven life? To answer that initial question, we probably need to define the word doxology. <laughs> that, sounds like, that would be a good place to start, right? The doxology-driven life. What in the world does doxology mean? If we translate that compound word literally, it comes from some Greek words, it just literally means a glory word. A glory word. Or a word of glory. As one writer describes it, a doxology is an eruptive statement of praise to the God who is worthy of all our glory words. An eruptive statement of praise to the God who is worthy of all glory words. The Bible is full of doxologies. These kinds of eruptive statements of praise. They're usually at the end of a psalm at the end of a letter, at the end of a section in Scripture, you might recognize, many of you might recognize these statements from the closing blessing that we use every Sunday morning here at Way of Grace. For example, here are two from the Apostle Paul. Take a look on the screen. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the King of, age, of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's another one, maybe more familiar to you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, I know Tim knows this one, than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. You know these, right? You know these doxologies when we see them in Scripture. They really are these explosive or eruptive, like sometimes they just come like out of the blue. All of a sudden you've got somebody lifting up their voice with this kind of praise to God. But this morning, in light of that opening question about the doxology-driven life, the specific doxology that I'd like us to focus on is the one we heard from Paul last week in our Bible reading plan. It's found in the closing verses, the last three or four verses of Romans chapter 11. Look at those verses with me. Verses 33 through 36 of Romans 11. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable, you know the word scrutiny? Yeah, inscrutable, we can't figure it out. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been 
his counselor or who has given him a gift, a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Wow, what a statement. Very briefly, to try to understand this statement, to understand it, to, to apply it to our own lives, to make sense of how, what, what it means for us, or in terms of what it means for the implications for our lives. Very briefly, let's do two things with this passage, okay? First, let's make sure we understand, in general, the verses themselves. Let's try to understand these verses themselves. What are the words that we find there? What are the ideas being communicated there? So let's make sure we understand the verses themselves. But second, let's also make sure we understand these words in the context in which they're sitting here. Chapter 11, maybe what's come before that. Well, if we look at chapter 11, what we'd find, though, if we had the time this morning, is that the context of chapter 11 for these verses in turn is pointing us to a bigger context, which is Romans chapters 9 through 11. And then we, when we, if we could take the time to really dig into Roman, Romans chapters 9 through 11, guess what we would find? We would find that we need to go back probably to Romans 1 through 8 and really see the buildup towards that where Paul has arrived in those chapters. So that's what I mean by context thinking about what's come before that might uh, affect what Paul is saying here. So Romans uh, chapter 11, we're looking at the verses first and then the context. So quickly, if you're taking notes, let me point out just three things. I'm not going to have them on the screen. They're just three ways of kind of summarizing what we're seeing here so that we better under, we can make sense of what the, what's included in these verses. Let me point out these three things about the main text. First of all, Paul tells us here that like a mysterious ocean trench, right? The deepest, anyone know what the deepest trench in the world is? The Mariana Trench, right? The Mariana Trench, which is in the South Pacific, deeper. I think you can put, you can put two or three Mount Everests on top of one another in this trench. If you ever saw when James Cameron was going down to film the Titanic discovery, went down those little submersibles, we heard that terrible story about that submersible that got crushed that was trying to take tourists down to the Titanic wreckage. We have this idea in our mind uh, of these submersibles. Now think about this. Think about going down into a mysterious ocean trench where you never, ever, 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 ever reach the bottom. That's what Paul is saying here. You can never get to the bottom of the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. That big, that powerful. They simply cannot be measured. What are the riches he's talking about here? Well, we just look back at Romans and we can see uh, the riches of his kindness, chapter 2. It talks about his riches to vessels of glory in chapter 9. There are, there's mentions of the riches that we have in Christ through Jesus. I think the best way to summarize it are just to talk about the riches 
of God's glory and grace that he has been unpacking in this letter. Those are the riches I think he has in mind here. We're going to see in just a few minutes how these riches are connected to God's wisdom and knowledge. But here's the second point. The first point, just verse 33, this immeasurable. Paul is telling us here about the the fact that the depth of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge cannot be measured. Second, Paul is emphasizing a humbling fact for us. And that's this. God's wisdom and knowledge are... Especially in light of the first point, this, is, this makes sense. <laughs> this is obvious. They are immeasurably far above human wisdom and knowledge. Paul's just being clear. He's like, I'm just going to cover all my bases here. Just, in, just so in case you didn't get the first point, the implications of the first point, that God's riches and wisdom and knowledge are, deep and can, are so deep they can never be measured. I just want to re- just cover my bases, check the boxes, make sure you know that that means God's wisdom and knowledge is far above your wisdom and knowledge. I, I think most of us get that idea, but he's just, he's just covering the, his bases here. As Paul expresses it in verses 34 and 35, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? What is Paul doing here? He's trying to establish the appropriate perspective that we understand the relationship between God and man. Right? God does not exist for us. We exist for God. He created us. You see, every wise man or woman right, in this world... Throughout history, right to the day, think of the most brilliant people you can think of. Think of the wisest people that you've ever seen or heard or known. Think of them. All of them have received at least some of their wisdom from someone else. The phrase is, we stand on the shoulders of such and such person. We stand on the shoulders of this knowledge that we've already received. That's never true for God. It's really silly for us to think that somehow we've got God figured out. No. Does that mean we can have no knowledge of God? No, of course not. We know things about God. What He's chosen to reveal to us. But just like a postcard of the Grand Canyon where we can learn a lot about what's being shown there. The colors, the beauty, the depth, the sunset, right? The the kind of rock. We might get rock samples from that Grand Canyon or whatever. But it's a representation of the actual canyon. We don't see the actual canyon with these eyes. We, we are communicate. God gives us a communication of himself in certain ways. We need to know that beyond that postcard, there is something big and real and deep and so awe-inspiring that when you get there, you're almost not even sure you're believing what you're seeing with your eyes. Same is true with God in some sense. The analogies don't work at every level, but I'm, I'm trying to pull some ideas in here of this analogy. It is silly for us to think that somehow that we've got God figured out, that we could figure God out. God does not depend on us in any way. Paul says he doesn't owe us anything. His wisdom and his knowledge are so superior to human wisdom that no one could ever give him advice. Again, 
What is Paul doing here? He is calling his readers. He's extolling God. He's worshiping God. He's glorifying God in this way. But he's also calling his readers to humility in light of God's greatness. That's the second point. A third point here. A third point about these verses. Paul reminds us that God's wisdom and God's knowledge stand alone, unique, because God is alone and unique as the one who created everything. And by your will they existed. Revelation 4. We see this expressed right here in the context in verse 36. Look again at verse 36. God owes no one anything. No one can be His counselor because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. He made everything. He made everyone. He upholds everything. He has a purpose for everything and everyone. If somebody has that in their column, you ain't giving them any advice. <laughs> you ain't giving them anything they don't already have. He has everything. Doesn't it highlight human hubris, arrogance, when we get in our minds these ideas? Even sometimes when we think about the love of God, the sentimentality of our culture affects it. God was just, He loved us so much, He'd rather die than live without us. I understand what you're saying when you say that, but I think something's off in that. <laughs> right? Like, God just like, oh... I can't go on without you. No, God can go on just fine. Perfectly content. God being God for all eternity past, all eternity present, without us. That doesn't diminish His love for us. No, not at all. God's already proven His great love for us. What a powerful big picture of God that we have here. You see, all of that wonderful theological pressure that's been building up in Paul ever since chapter 1 because of the absolute greatness of God explodes into this doxology and it arrives at its highest and most obvious expression in the closing words of verse 36. To Him be glory forever! How could we not go there? Right? If there's anything good, anything worthy of praise, anything of value, anything excellent, anything in the world that we would, we would lift up and exalt, it points to God and His glory, His fame, His greatness. Because from Him and through Him and to Him are what? All things. Every single thing. But, this is where, boy, it gets even better than this. Listen. This is where we need to expand our perspective and think about these verses in terms of the broader context. For example, notice what drives Paul to burst out like this about the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. What drives him to this? We'll look back at the verses preceding. Verses 30 through 32 of Romans 11. What does it say there? For just as you Gentiles, non-Jews, 
were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, that is, Israel's disobedience, so they too, the Jewish people, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Now, (laughs) what in the world is Paul talking about here? How do we make sense of what Paul is saying here? Well, this discussion actually starts at the beginning of chapter 9. And here's just the simple contours. Because the Jewish people for the most part, had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and in the early church were regularly opposing the gospel. That's what Paul calls their disobedience. The gospel mission, as we read in the book of Acts, was often more focused on and was gaining ground among the Gentiles. But because of believing Gentiles like us, Because of believing Gentiles like us, at some point in the future, in some way, God will ultimately redeem a large number of Jewish people. That's what he said in chapter 11. Not every Jewish person who's ever lived, because Paul already told us at the beginning of chapter 9, not everyone who is of Israel is Israel. We know that from the Old Testament too. He goes on to kind of spell that out in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Not all who are of Israel are Israel, but of that Israel, right, of those, of those who will believe coming up, God is going to save them in a, in, a, in, a, in a profound way. Just as obvious as their resistance to the gospel was in terms of their widespread resistance to Christ, rejection and resistance to the gospel, it will be just as obvious and widespread that they have received Christ as their Messiah. And somehow God is using Gentile believers like us in that process. So as Paul describes in verse 32, God has allowed both Jews and Gentiles to become indicted, held captive, as he translates that word in the book of Galatians, held captive under their disobedience so that he might, according to his timing, according to his purposes, according to his wisdom and knowledge, he might have mercy on all humanity. Not every single individual. We know the Bible doesn't teach that. But on all kinds of people, regardless of where they come from, what they look like, what they sound like. doesn't matter. That's what we're talking about here. Jew and Gentile, that distinction. There is no distinction now. God will have mercy on all. Now, there's a whole lot that we could cover here. I don't want us to get bogged down, though, in the, in the specifics of just this section, chapters 9 through 11. We would need probably a week to dig through this. I believe Paul's argument here is driven by everything. The reason I don't want us to get bogged down is I believe Paul's argument here is driven by everything he's already laid out in this letter. So I think that also means the doxology that we're focused on this morning, verses 33 through 36, this eruptive statement of praise, I believe that that doxology is also 
based on, inspired by chapters 1 through 8, as well as chapters 9 through 11. So again, think about the phrase, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Think about that statement in light of everything you've read in Romans up to this point. When you think through that, I think that you'll come to the same conclusion that I came to. That statement in verse 33 is not simply a generic statement about the greatness of God as creator. Look at the size. Look at the complexity. Look at the beauty. Look at the majesty. Look at the utter grandeur of everything he's made. No, that's a great place to start. But you can go even deeper than that, Paul is telling us. This is a glory word in verse 33 about the greatness of God as stunningly manifested in the greatness of God's salvation. The greatness of the gospel of grace. That's where we should be most in awe of God. That's where we should be stupefied, blown away. Our mouths are shut. And then at the same time, opened in eruptive praise before God. Paul is not simply in awe of God's timing in all of this of how he can soften hard hearts using resistance to the gospel to bring submission to the gospel. He is in awe of that, but he's also in awe of a righteousness based on faith alone. Chapter 3, verse 21. He is in awe of undeserved kindness for guilty people like us, Jew and Gentile. Chapter 3, verse 24. He is in awe of how God can dispense or mete out justice at the cross, but also through the cross, justify us. Chapter 3, verse 26. He is in awe of a free gift following many trespasses. Chapter 5, verse 16. He is in awe of newness of life. Chapter 6, verse 4. He's in awe of freedom now from the body of death and no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. He is in awe of how God can cause everything to work together for the eternal good of His people. Chapter 8, verse 28. And He is in awe of how nothing will separate us, be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.39 And yes, he is absolutely in awe as chapters 9-11 through 11 demonstrate. He is in awe at how God has and will fulfill all his promises through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by calling both Jew and Gentile through the gospel to be his people for all eternity. Whatever narrow perspectives and small categories and simplistic explanation Paul's readers wanted to cling to, in this letter, he has pulled back the veil for them on the unsearchable and inscrutable depths of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge as manifested in His grand and glorious work of redemption. 
And so he erupts in praise at the end of that. The wonderful theological pressure has been building up to this point, And he just has to let it out. He says, you think that you've got God figured out? You think that your little categories of law and whatever, you know, Jew and Gentile, you think you've got that all laid out. You don't understand. There is something so much bigger and glorious than you could even ever imagine. It's happening right now. Be a part of it. Give glory to God. I believe that's his heart here, is that his, for his readers, that they would, in similar awe and humility and gratitude, they would join him in declaring this glory word, this doxology. But, but what about us? What about us this morning? When you think about what Romans has revealed to you regarding God's rescue plan for us, and when you think about how that rescue plan was actually worked out in your life specifically, go back over your biography, worked out specifically in light of knowledge we received from God, worked out from before the foundation of the world. Your salvation worked out through various people and various circumstances in terms of you coming to Christ, saving faith in Christ. How it will be, your faith, your saving, your salvation will be worked out to completion one day. How nothing can stop it and how you will feast on life in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. When you think about that, What does it inspire in you? What's building inside of you in terms of the theological pressure cooker, right? What is happening? Or we might simply say, what might it mean to live the doxology-driven life? What does that look like? Let me give you a couple ideas to at least get us thinking, started talking with one another. First... Here's, a, here's an idea. Like Paul, first of all, let us testify to the glory of God with our words. Hasn't Paul demonstrated that for us here? Right? He's just broken out in this praise to God. He's broken out in this way. We can learn from this, can't we? Inside and outside the church, brothers and sisters, may we never be ashamed to declare the greatness of God. Let's not hold back. Let's declare the greatness of God. As we read about and as we hear about and sing about so great a salvation, as Hebrews calls it, let's erupt in praise and thanks to God. Now, I know this. I know in certain church circles, it's very common, and maybe many of you grew up hearing these things. You hear things like, praise the Lord, praise God, hallelujah, thanks be to God. Right? You've heard those. And those are perfectly biblical expressions. We see those, we read those all the time in God's Word. But let's check our hearts when we choose to use those phrases or when we choose not to use those phrases. Let's check our hearts first. Let's examine our hearts. Why do I say that? Because some of this language is used by Christians to fit in. Some of this language traditionally has just come because people want to be part of the group and they want to sound like the group and they kind of want to use that as an expression, right? Whether that be churches or places where you've lived where maybe it was very common. You know, well, God bless you and, and oh, praise the Lord and, 
it's just kind of that shorthand in people's like just talking with one another but you could substitute like good luck or something else like probably right in the same vein you could probably substitute it for them and it wouldn't make a difference in terms of where they're hearted it's just adopted language but others of us avoid this language because we recognize that fact and we don't want to sound fake and still others of us come to this culture of usage of, of phrases like that and they are strange to us so we think things like that sound kind of canned or corny here's my point brothers and sisters may our expressions of praise be shaped less by people and more by the god who inspires praise let's not worry about all the other stuff Let's think about the God who inspire, inspires praise. Sure, get anchored in Scripture and find your own way to glorify God with your words. Just don't settle for silence. Doxology is a precious part of new life in Christ. We need to speak out about Christ. We need to let our hearts overflow. However you want to do that, anchored in Scripture, go ahead and do that, right? That's up to you to do that. But don't be silent. And I'm not saying just like, oh, I, I want to apply the, the, the sermon, Pastor Bryce, this, this week. So this week I'm going to at least five times try to use praise God in some context. Hey, I just, my car just broke down. Well, praise God. Well, that's probably, well, <laughs> you know, you're just trying to kind of shove it in places like, See, I'm applying the sermon, Pastor. I'm, I'm erupting in praise. It's the doxology-driven life. No, 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 no. You're misunderstanding me if that's what you're going to apply. Don't be afraid when God moves on your heart. You catch a vision of Him, a vision of the greatness of your salvation. Don't be afraid to express that. Say it out loud. Write it in a note to somebody to encourage them. Post it online. Write a poem. Write a song. Write it in your journal. I don't know. Get it out. Declare it. Speak it. Number two, as Paul instructs us, let us testify to the glory of God with our lives, not just our words, with our lives. We don't really have to speculate about the doxology-driven life. Why is that? Because there's a therefore in the very next verse. Look at Romans 12.1. There's a therefore. That's a link to the, to the last verse before that. Therefore, what is he saying in 12.1? He is going from an exclamation of worship in 11.33 through 36. He's going from an exclamation of worship to an explanation of worship in Romans 12.1. He writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what? Worship. Remember, we've talked about this. A lot of Romans is written to Jewish Christians in Rome who were, who were struggling to understand Paul's call to be an apostle to non-Jews, to Gentiles, and they were concerned about the implications of that on the law, how they view the law, how they use the law, if the Gentiles would be keeping the law also, they'd be following that, that guide, those guidelines as well, what that meant, what it should mean. So, Paul 
not surprisingly, is using imagery from their tradition. He's using imagery from the Old Covenant. He's using imagery from their past. And he's adapting it and he's saying, you know what? You would often, in terms of praise to God, your ancestors would bring sacrifices. And many of you have done, have done that since you were young. If you make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you would be bringing sacrifices. Remember all the people gathered on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem for worship from all around the Roman world? All those different language speakers? That's what they would do. So if they went there, they would be sacrificing. So maybe months or years just before Paul wrote this, some of these Jewish Christians in Rome had been, and they'd offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. They'd gone on a pilgrimage to offer those sacrifices. What is Paul saying here about now in light of Jesus? What is the appropriate response to the greatness of God, to the greatness of his salvation? He says, sacrifice. It's still the appropriate response. What kind of sacrifice? You offering a living sacrifice. Don't be killing anything. Don't, don't kill yourself or anything else. Right? Just take yourself and give it over to God for his purposes. That's what we're reading here. God, Paul is calling us to offer to God each day. He's calling you to offer your body for his purposes. God wants you to offer your body for his purposes. If we agree that from him and through him and to him are all things. Do you agree with that? Let me say it again. If we agree that from him and through him and to him are all things. Do you agree with that? And if we declare with Paul to him be glory forever. Do you want to say that with Paul? Yes. Then why would you not seek to honor him with the all things of your life? It just doesn't make any sense if you don't believe that. You can't admit to the first ones without applying that and say, well, all things in my life, all things pertaining to me, anything and everything that I come into contact with, all of my thoughts, all of my feelings, my destiny, my past, present, and future, all of people in my circle, all of it, my money, my talent, my treasure, my time, any, everything, my priorities, my ambitions, my dreams, all of it, I want to live for the glory of God. I want to sacrifice it before Him. Not sacrifice, offer it up to Him to see what He would have me to do with those things. Why? Because it is the appropriate response of worship. It is a doxology-driven life in light of the greatness of this God who has saved us through His Son. Brothers and sisters, in your seeing and hearing, think of your body, in your seeing and your hearing, in your going and your getting, in your eating and in your drinking, in your pain and in your pleasure. Glorify God with your body. Glorify God through your body. But please remember this, and this will go, that will go out on this closing note. Please remember this, and may God always remind us of this, that to testify to His glory, as we've been talking about, you see on the screen there, to testify to His glory, we need to first behold His glory. You can't testify to something you haven't seen. To testify to His glory means we need to first behold His glory. To promote His fame. To affirm His excellence. 
unrivaled excellence to point to his absolutely unique position over and claim on everything, all things, we must behold his greatness. We should behold his greatness regularly. And we should seek to grow in our understanding of his unsearchable depth. How do we do that? We do that through the word of God. Why should you be a serious student of the Word of God? Because the greatness and glory of God is contained in there. There is power. There is something so big, powerful, beautiful, something that will speak to you, minister to you, bless you, unlike anything else in the whole universe in that book. And yes, you come and you sit under the teaching of the word. Praise God. You meet with others, talk about the word. Praise God. We need those things, but we also ourselves need to dig in. We need to hear from God. We need to, we need to think carefully. We need to meditate upon his word, asking for him to give us that understanding to grow in our understanding of his unsearchable depth. Even though it's unsearchable, we want to search it out with every ounce of energy and passion and attention that we can muster, right? That's what we want. We want to know this God in this way. We do that through the word. We do that together. Brothers and sisters, my question to you is this. How big is your God? How big is your God? Is he as big as the God of the Bible? Ah, and you're like, oh, Pastor Bryce, you're trying to catch me there. My God is big. big. He's the God of the Bible. Are you sure? He is the God of the Bible, but how big is he? Have you gotten every, every dugout, every little bit of what you can about the depth of God or that expanded vision of God from the word? Well, probably not. Okay, then keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't settle. Don't be saying, well, I'm satisfied with this vision of God at this point. No, keep going. Keep digging into this. Listen to Paul's desire for his readers and the similar language he uses in Colossians 2. He desired, take a look on the screen, he desired for his readers that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Look at this next phrase, see if it sounds familiar. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Whoa. <laughs> Wait a minute. Where are all these found? In Christ. In Christ. Colossians 2, verse 3. More than anything, it is the greatness of our salvation and the greatness of our Savior that reveal the greatness of God. Let me say that again. More than anything, it is the greatness of our salvation and the greatness of our Savior in whom all of this is hidden that reveal the greatness of God. Hidden now, but made known, revealed that greatness that inspires. This is the greatness we're talking about, the greatness that inspires every true glory word. And that inspires the doxology-driven life 
to which you and I are called. Amen? Amen. Let's ask.